So in trying to provide a roadmap or framework for navigating what seems to be an extended process, doesn't, doesn't seem to anyone that this process, this war that we're waging for our survival to defeat evil, this process will end quickly, rapidly. It seems to be long and drawn out, a lot of twists and turns, a lot of international diplomacy influence, a lot of political activism, social media. There's a lot happening, a lot to uncork and a lot to unzip with this long war. So I've been trying to provide some framework. So one framework I'm trying to provide is we're saying to Hillam on a daily basis, let's focus on the 13, 14 prakim that most directly speak about defeating our enemies, and in particular, pasuk here, pasuk there, just to help streamline the process, rather than reciting lip service, 13 or 2 or 3 prakim a day, shiramalos, shiramalos, to think each time, each couple of days, about a particular pasuk that resonates. Second series I'm trying to develop is believing in nisim, in miracles. We know that we need an ace. We hope and we pray that we're at the stage where Hashem will provide nisim, whether they're overt nisim or um, covert and concealed nisim. And to ask for nisim in an honest way, we have to believe in the capacity for nisim and miracles. And the way we believe in nisim is by revisiting past nisim, being samech geula to our tefillah. This is the third series that I'd like to begin to explore. And it's the hardest one to explore because there's really no masara. There's a Masara of Nisim, obviously, Tanakh, Chazal. There's a Masara of Tehillim, the Pesachim themselves, and Rafarshim, and Midrashim. There's no Masara for what war means to a Jew, what war means to a religious Jew. We didn't fight wars for 2,000 years. Um, we obviously, this is our, we could call this our fourth major war since we've returned to our homeland and to the front stage of history. But um, we're so busy, as we should be, with the logistics of the war and the davening and the chesed. What, what is war? Now, this is a very, very hard and delicate topic. It's hard because there's no masara. It's delicate because to speak dispassionately about the role of war, and each war is different, and, and most concerningly, war is hard. It's terrible. It's horrific. People die. Innocent people die. We hope in Davin with every fiber of our being, Takarish Baruch, that no more Yidin will die. We hope that no more non combatants will die, as opposed to Hamas Yimach Shemam, who deserve to be eliminated every time. And I'll just say it now, because it was remember an hour ago, Hodu, Ladunai, Kitov, Kili, Alam, Chazda, another Hamas um, officer was eliminated. These subhuman beasts, these barbaric animals, do not belong on this earth. We should exert no Absolutely no sympathy for them. Zero. These people have signed their death warrant, as everyone, I'm sure, with any degree of moral clarity understands. But what does war mean in general? One of the larger forces. So it's, it's an exploration for me. It's an exploratory process for me. I'm going to start with the easiest, not the easiest, but the most concrete. And, um, and that's Riff Cook. Riff Cook in 1921 published a, probably his foundational safer known as Orot, um, very, very controversial. Um, you could say this is what ignited much of the opposition and the controversy, specifically from the Haredi world against Rav Kook's writings. Um, without getting into the history right now, this doesn't want, it's not what interests me right now. It's a collection of, of different um, you know, little short paragraphs on Eretz Yisrael, on the rise of the Jewish people, on secularism, uh, on the relationship between physical experience and spiritual experience, Real, you could, I mean, it's a, it's a small safer, 
But if you really want to understand Rav Cook, and that's a very difficult task, this is the Sefer to, to start with. Now, in the Sefer called Orot, he has a section called Milchama, or sometimes it's called Orot HaMilchama. And he's writing about the First World War, it's 1921. So a lot of it is very, very context-specific, but a lot of it can be generalized and thought about. But three words of caution, if you're not a Rav Cook um, expert, you're not someone that has a lot of seasoning and experience in Rav Cook. Number one, he writes a lot about metaphysics. I speak a lot about metaphysics. Namely, there are forces that dictate human experience, historical experience, that can't be traced with sociological, political, rational eyes. There are larger forces that take place in our world that shape human behavior, such as anti-Semitism. I've spoken about it before. And it's legitimate to ask, where does anti-Semitism come from? And it's legitimate to try to trace a metaphysical route, the jealousy of Jews. Now, if you interviewed one of these Hamasim Achshemam terrorists, they won't quote the Gemara, they won't quote the metaphysical forces, but those forces are very much subliminal and subconscious within human identity. Um, that's what Cook writes about a lot, so it's not something you can you ask yourself, how does he know this, and how can you prove this, and it's not what's happening in the headlines, it's not what he's, he's writing on a different plane. Second of all, there's universalism, and Jews are concerned, not just with their own backyard, or in this case, their own wars, and their own defense of their own people, but even something like World War I, which more or less, certainly at the time, before the Balfour Declaration, didn't have any direct Jewish impact. This was a universal global war that did, I mean, obviously Jews served in the war, Jews suffered in the war, uh, Eastern European Jews were constantly on the run from the Germans and the Russian Bolsheviks. It was, it was a constant back and forth, but it, it's certainly, you, you cannot in any way say that this was predominantly a Jewish event, yet this has ramifications for history and for Jewish history. Third of all, um, maybe sorry, four, four caveats and four di- not disclaimers, but preconditions, is his writing, if you decide, and I'll try to include the actual text, his writing is very, very poetic, and it's in Hebrew, and it's even people that are natural Hebrew speakers have a hard time. You need to read each piece minimum four or five times. And of course, the fifth thing is, is that the state of Israel, even though it possesses a secular nature and possesses a secular nature, still has religious and spiritual validity. Of course, keep in mind, just like many people in our community would claim, and I would be amongst them, that just because Rebbe Hanan Wasserman had something to say about Zionism, or the Birch Shmuel had something to say about Zionism, or about secular education in 1930 or 1920 or whatever, the events of the 40s and the modern era so radically changed the face of secular culture, of course, the face of our people, the history of our people, that it's very, very hard to clip and paste from what they said to our world. I don't know what Rebbe Hanan would say if he landed in this world today and saw the state of Israel with 8 million Jews. It's easy to talk about the state of Israel and the horrible secularists when you're writing in um, the Kovna Ghetto and writing on a piece of paper and theorizing. When you're trying to battle local secular Zionists or trying to steal local communal funds from you because there's a big political fight in your local shtetl for control over Jewish resources between the traditionalists and the... It's very hard to extrapolate from something that Berkha Shmuel said about college. Well, literally, going to college in the early part of the 20th century means you lose your frumkite. You're going to be a kofir because these were hot dens of kafira. Sadly, we see that colleges today are not hot dens of kafira. They're hot dens of anti-Semitism and moral confusion. But going to a university today doesn't mean you're signing your death warrant. There are reasons not to go to university. I'm not, I'm not, this is not an endorsement of university. I think it's very hard because the world changed so dramatically. And to be intellectually honest, the same is true about Rav Cook. You can't just clip and paste from Rav Cook writing in 1920 to the reality of today's state of Israel. So that's why I think that people who look to the previous generation 
in particular from 1880 to 1940 for guidance about post-1948 issues, it, it's, a, it's a whole different landscape. It's an entirely different equation. And the same is true about Rav Cook. Anyway, given all that, let's work through this Sefer piece by piece. Some pieces are larger, some are smaller. I'll try to work piece by piece for about 10 pieces, so this series will unfold over those 10 pieces, and I'll try to bring in other parallel ideas. In his first piece, in his first piece, he makes the following three bold statements. And again, he's working over World War I, which, by the way, if you just look at it from an outsider's perspective, was far more transformational to human consciousness than World War II. Said otherwise, World War II can be legitimately, legitimately dubbed as the sequel or World War I Part II. That's why it's called World War II. There was the leftovers, there was issues that were left unresolved, there were tensions that were triggered by the seemingly asymmetrical Versailles Treaty, which um, uh, subjugated the Germans, inner tensions in Italy, Japan's colonial, but these were very, very much layovers in World War I. And in terms of shifting people out of the, out of the early modern period into the new modern period, World War I was far, far more pivotal. Anyway, I'll try to read just a few lines. Number one, and I'll start from the beginning. Kishayeshis is taken from Rivka. Kishayesh milchama gedola beolam. When there's a big war, even if it's not a Jewish war, misorer koach mashiach, mitorer koach mashiach. Every large war, large wars, not little skirmishes, not but large global, global inter, uh, events. We're going through a global event. These large global events must have historical slash messianic connotations or potential. Hashem would not allow wars just to rage in hundreds and thousands. There is some historical impact. And of course, being that the Jews are the funnel of history, through their experience, all of history streams, and there must be some Jewish impact. And of course, for Jews, the, the trajectory, the timeline of history is yielding a messianic endpoint. So, Okay. Number two, Harishaim nichadim min holam, v'holam mitbasim. Evil is eliminated through wars, and the world becomes cleansed. So not only does it have messianic potential, but it continues the purging of evil, of moral and religious evil. Now I'm just skipping a few lines. The achrakach kitoma milchama. Once this process is concluded. There's a new spirit that descends upon this world. And of course, this new spirit advances history, advances the vanguard of history, the Jewish people, and therefore leads to messianic potential. I think the core of this piece, and I'm not going to read the whole piece, but I think the, the major core to sink your teeth into is how war elicits evil that has been concealed, battles with it, and of course, eliminates it. So again, war is not just a decision of monarchs and of generals and of dictators. War happens where there is moral rot, moral decay, religious energy. There's something wrong and it just remains suppressed and suppressed and suppressed. And at a certain point, it just explodes in a fury of, of war. Evil explodes. And hopefully... Again, we don't know all the answers, but hopefully part of the war is to defeat that evil. Sometimes it's obvious. So one of the um, accumulating evils 
that occurred in the let's say world uh, pre World War II era. Let's say it was racism and and Nazism and fascism and World War II defeated that and hopefully led to the defeat of communism. Subsequently, you know, 50, 60 years in world history is just the bat of an eyelash. But even if it's not to defeat it, it lets out, like you're letting out some pus or something that infects the body. You just bore a hole in the skin and all that pus comes out and the body is cleansed. And the war is a cleansing. And again, this is what I said before, to use terms that it's cleansing and it's uh, it's it's... It's progressional and it advances the human condition by letting this evil out at the cost of millions of lives. And that's the tragedy. You never want ideology to sugarcoat or to rose paint human suffering, to create rose-colored lenses or rose-tinted lenses. And you look at, let's say, World War I and everything that was building in the pre-World War I era, um, the... The, the, the spring of Europe, where there was this unbridled confidence in the new Europe after 200 years of industrial revolution and economic well-being and the cities in Europe that represented that optimism for the future of Vienna and Budapest and Paris and Amsterdam and London and to a degree Rome. And, and these were to be seen as the modern city and modern man. And this modern city and modern man was, of course, very proper, right? We want human beings to advance, but it had very little religious spirit. And in fact, much of this optimism was anti-religious, was secularist, the power of man, the power of technology, the power of culture, the power of philosophy, the power of atheist philosophy. And not only was it theologically flawed, but it was also morally corrupt because as people were celebrating in Amsterdam and Vienna and in Paris, they were um, subjugating their colonies to draw wealth from them. And there was a moral disparity and a moral imbalance between life in Vienna and life in uh, the colony, or life in Af- Africa, or South America, or one of the islands. And somehow, that imbalance had to be corrected. And there's also a lot of violent tendencies in, in, the, in the New World, where, where maps were clearly being redrawn and monarchies were fading. So anytime there's a black hole, or there's an empty space, there's there's an empty vacuum. There's a lot of jostling and political infighting and who will have more empire and which empire will recede and which empire will rise. So there's aggressive tendencies. There's moral disparity. There's secular-based optimism in this new Europe. There's a lot festering beneath the surface. And the war comes, number one, lets it all out. Number two, hopefully defeats some of it in ways that maybe we're aware of, ways we're not aware of. I don't have to tell you all the evil festering and pulsing beneath the surface before World War II. Um, Certainly anti-Semitism, and Hitler lights a spark, and all the other anti-Semites, as they are now, come out of the woodwork. The Ukrainians, and the Polish, and the whoever else conspired, and the Italians, and whoever else Romanians, whoever else conspired with Hitler, either initially towards the end of the Hungarians, towards the end of the Holocaust. So these are two realities that war reflects, and to then apply it to our situation, ask yourself, I'll just give some general thoughts and comments, what evil has to be let out and hopefully defeated in this war? Um, Jews are the protectors of moral spirit, the protectors of humanity, and we defeat evil. That's why the enemies that we battle are all central enemies, they're not peripheral historical agents, they're major, major forces. And So our battle, as, as we keep saying and the world keeps 
for whatever reason, just losing sight of, ignoring, uh, um, suppressing, denying that this is a, not a battle between Israel and Hamas, this is a battle between good and evil, light and dark, people who celebrate light, people who butcher, decapitate, dance, celebrate, ask their parents to take pride in killing headcounts, how many Jews I kill, that's just subhuman beasts, subhuman beasts. I'm not, I'm not a politician, but my, my family was having a conversation last night how to, how to shut down the tunnels and kill the rats known as Hamas that are in these tunnels and without sending the soldiers in to what will be very, very close encounters and tunnels that they're not familiar with. And I'm not going to say what we discussed, but in my opinion, there is no, there is no method of killing these rats that is um, these subhuman people that it shouldn't be thought of, shouldn't be tolerated. These people have given up their right to live. Now, there are broader questions what about hostages, about civilians, but in terms of facing a Hamas animal, the, people, the types of crimes they committed, like I said, this is a simcha gedola, every single one of them who's killed. And there should be no tools available that shouldn't be considered, again, factored in with all the other issues, world opinion, but from a moral, religious standpoint, these are people, there's a great simcha in removing them from the world. So there's a lot of evil that they represent, and religion, fundamentalism, weaponized to kill people, creating cultures of death. In the broader sense, as we've seen, anti-Semitism is lying beneath the surface and has been growing, and 2023 feels a lot like 1943, as shocked as many people are. I'm not shocked. Um, it's aided by moral relativism, the loss of any absolute values. So there's a lot of evil that's been festering beneath. There's a lot of rishos that's been festering beneath the surface that is now coming to the surface in this war. And the war is letting it get out there and people of moral spirit are able to see it and condemn it. And hopefully, at a literal level, with Hashem's help, our defeat of our enemies in this war will in some way defeat the threat of these warped and distorted ideas and advance um, advance moral history. And of course, advances towards redemption and we call redemption Mashiach. So this is just the first installment of what I'll call war and religion and hopefully some of these series, the series on Tehillim and the series of Nisim and the series of War and Religion, I hope I'll have the Chachma and at this point the strength to be able to help explore some of these areas will give us scaffolding for us to continue this process that we know the building that we're erecting, that's the scaffolding within which we're building.